This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 6, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. What does China owe Russia? Not much. And that fact matters when considering war in Ukraine and the recent meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Cato's Eric Gomez comments. A lot seems to have been made of the closeness between uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin uh, with respect to the war in Ukraine. One, how do you characterize that uh, discussion and how accurate or fair is it? I think it's a natural tendency to conclude that China and Russia are very much joined at the hips in cahoots. Uh, Xi Jinping, or well, Vladimir Putin visited uh, Beijing for the Winter Olympics right before the invasion happened. Uh, and, and there was kind of this belief that at the time that like, oh, you know, she kind of asked him to hold off until after the Olympics happened. And the Russia-China relationship has been generally improving over time. Uh, before the Ukraine war, there was increased trade. There was, you know, some Chinese soldiers went to observe and participate in Russian military exercises, that kind of thing. So since the war has started, I, I think there's this idea that China might be this key to pressuring Russia. Um, I think that's a bit unfair, though. I, 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 China's playing this very well in the sense that for the duration of the war, they've been very careful not to get on the wrong side of U.S. or Western sanctions, while also providing Russia with some diplomatic support, but almost no material support but beyond just general trade, right? And and so I think they're trying uh, what Evan Feinbaum at Carnegie calls the Beijing straddle, which I think is very apt. They're, they're trying, China's trying to like have a good enough relationship with Russia without getting too far drawn into this and suffering negative consequences. And so far, you know, a year and change into the war, that's been remarkably successful. Uh, I think China of sort of any major power in all this has the most potential freedom of maneuver, right? Where the U.S. is, Russia is very much committed to the war. Uh, the United States is very committed to helping Ukraine. China's kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll give some help to the Russians, but not a lot. We're just more in this to see, you know, what kind of trade benefits we can get. <laughs> and they're doing well. I looked at the the data on where China gets its oil, and uh, it imports uh, the bulk of its oil from uh, Arab countries. But number two, and not far behind, is Russia. So uh, it it, it speaks to your point that perhaps uh, President Xi just wants to keep things uh, copacetic among its trading right. partners. Exactly, and and I think the United States has has tried to kind of move the Chinese off of certain displays of greater support for Russia. Um, before she went to Moscow earlier this month, for example, he said, or the Biden administration said, hey, listen, we're hearing chatter about a potential, you know, Chinese arms exports to the Russians. Hey, China, if you do that, we would be very upset with you. And it doesn't appear like it's gone through, or at least if it has happened, it's been very, very, it's been kept very quiet. And so, yeah, China kind of wants to keep things 
It wants to ma- maximize freedom of maneuver. It wants to keep things copacetic, like you said. And so far, they're doing a good job of it. Um, if the U.S. really wanted, we could try and sort of force them to make a choice. I think the problem there is uh, we might not like the choice they make. <laughs> um, you know, if we if we kind of lean hard on the, uh, you know, you're either with us or you're with the Russians, and China will be like, well, I'm kind of with the Russians on this one because of where the general trend in the relationship is going. Uh, so I think it would be smart for U.S. policy to to do what we can to not sort of further encourage that meshing up of interests. But for the time being, yeah, China's doing playing a good hand very well. I have heard uh, or read that uh, India, due to, in part, its uh, not great relationship with the United States, has been less active on behalf of Ukraine than U.S. policymakers might like. Uh, how, how fair is that? So India, I think, is emblematic of a so first off, some things specific to India, and then what India I think is emblematic of beyond just India. Specific to India, they're they have a lot of very sort of practical, down-to-earth reasons to not completely throw their relationship with Russia uh in the toilet by by sort of going all in on the US uh side and on the Ukrainian side. I'm a big one of that is just how much of their military is made of Russian equipment, right? The the most of the Indian military, um, the, most of their sort of better equipment is still Russian made. Uh, they're getting better at producing their own and they're importing more from the United States, but a really good chunk of the Indian armed forces is Russian. And so they need to maintain that relationship if they want to keep maintaining those things. Um, also, just historically, India has had good relations with the Russians because throughout the Cold War, India and the U.S. didn't really get along that well um, because, you know, variety of reasons like the United States aligned itself with Pakistan for a long time. Um, And so India kind of turned to the Soviet Union. Uh, So they really don't. There are good reasons for them not to kind of go whole hog on the side of the United States. What I think this is emblematic, and and the U.S. is frustrated by that because we're like, hey, listen, we would really like you on our team to help deal with China and to help sort of, you know, contain them. Um, and we're we're kind of doing a lot of stuff with you based off of that. So why won't you come along with us with on this? And India is trying hard to kind of keep those issues separate. I think beyond India, what the U.S.-India relationship and and this whole Ukraine stuff uh, means. You know, throughout a lot of countries in what's called like the global south, right? You know, like uh, Africa, Latin America, um, South and Southeast Asia. Th- there's they don't really buy the whole democracy versus autocracy framework that the U.S. has leaned into. They have their own sort of individual country interests to pursue, and Russia's been, you know, it they don't kind of want to get caught up in this whole like great power competition stuff either between the US and Russia or between the US and China. And so because of that they're kind of, you know, not they don't want to go all the way in. Now, some of them might support us, you know, they might vote with the United States and UN General Assembly things um to condemn Russia's invasion, but they're not going to be throwing in a bunch of material support. 
And I think that's frustrating for a lot of U.S. policymakers because it's like, well, why aren't you coming along here? I, you know, I, I think we got to meet those countries where they are. I, I don't think that we need to that trying to force them into adopting our preferences on this is going to work. I think that's more likely to drive them closer to China and Russia, which we also don't want. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where I, I think that there, because we got a lot of Europe on board right away, uh, we thought, oh, well, we'll just get a bunch of other places that we're friends with on board quickly too. And that hasn't materialized and it's left some people sort of scratching their heads. It's like, well, but don't you understand this is good versus evil, like democracy versus autocracy. And that just doesn't sell well uh, to a lot of these countries. Back to uh, President Xi and his relationship with Vladimir Putin and more broadly, the China-Russia relationship. Uh, it doesn't seem like President Xi owns owes anything to Vladimir Putin. Uh, and how relevant is it that China would like to fully uh, and unquestionably reabsorb Taiwan into uh, a, a part of mainland China, which of course they've asserted for a long time. But how relevant is this invasion of Ukraine along similar arguments that are at least public arguments that are presented by Russia about their aims and their uh, the legitimacy of their attack on Ukraine? Yeah, it's a very uncomfortable moment when, you know, China, who keeps on saying all this stuff about territorial indivisibility and, and sovereignty, and then Russia sort of <laughs> hives off Crimea and in 2014 and now uh, trying to do the same in Ukraine. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's exposed that sort of rhetorical, hypocriticalness of it all. I also think that, you know, while China might not like that, uh, they're they're also thinking about competition with the United States, um, you know, to to China and to the United States. Right. We've both sort of said, yeah, you know, China, U.S., we don't like each other right now. We are each other's number one competitors, adversaries, whatever you want to call it. And we're both countries are kind of leaning in to that competitive mindset. And in that world, you know, find friends and. Russia's looking like a good friend to China. Now, it's a relationship where China has a lot of the leverage. China can call a lot of the shots. They're not sort of beholden to Russia anymore like they were in the 50s, 60s, what have you. And, you know, so I, I think that's that's a big difference today versus before. When it comes to Taiwan, you know, the... um. Because I see this a lot, because uh, I, I I focus a lot on Taiwan, and there is a a tendency I think to conflate, you know, the Ukraine situation with the Taiwan situation. In both cases, a country that is good relations with U.S. but not formal ally with U.S. threatened by much larger neighbor. Um, I, I I think that number one, whether or not I would like this, if China tried to attack Taiwan, the U.S. military would show up. There's just more, there's more history there. There's more sort of ingrained support for Taiwan within the U.S. government. Um, so I think that's different. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's a, it's a sobering reminder. A lot of what China has been trying to do uh, with its military modernization, for example, is kind of seeing the Russian system as a potential model to follow in some respects. And, 
Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if they're. You saw my yes. you saw my eyes sort of bug <laughs> right. out. Right. Well, you said that. because on paper, pre-Ukraine war, Russia was looking pretty strong, um, and you know, uh, in my own, I'm working on a on a paper right now about this this sort of mindset in the U.S. of like China's going to go for it. China's going to attack Taiwan within the next three four years, and a lot of it is based off of just well, they have the ships, right? Like they have the stuff they would need to do it. Um, the problem is that the personnel, right. And, and I think the Russian experience in Ukraine and the Ukrainian experience is showing like the importance of, you know, yeah, modern military operations are still very hard and personnel matters and training matters. And the, I don't think the PLA, when they talk it to themselves, feel ready to do something like that. So a bit of a digression, but I think it was useful to point out because you know, there, there's a natural tendency, I think, to compare Ukraine and Taiwan as apples to apples. And I don't think it's quite an apples to apples comparison. Iran and North Korea have both uh, expressed support for Russia. What does that mean? I mean, it, it one, Iran is seems certainly probably more capable to send like material support uh, to Russia and uh, North Korea you know, maybe it's not surprising that they're allied with Russia. Yeah, this has been an interesting thing to watch as like a student of Iran and North Korea's nuclear programs and, and sort of how this how this plays in with the Ukraine war. So. In the I think we had windows of opportunity with Iran and North Korea to kind of advance some modus vivendi via diplomacy that would have not made us friends, but would have really improved the sort of security situation in the Middle East and in Northeast Asia. With Iran, it was the nuclear deal, right? Um, and Trump's decision to leave it, where you know I think the window was, we get the nuclear deal, North Korea or Iran's still doing things in the Middle East that we don't like, but we kind of take this very hot issue of them having a nuclear weapon and sort of keep it locked away, right? We, we kind of pun it and we create some space for that relationship to get somewhat better or somewhat more stable. Similar story with the North Koreans and, you know, post the 2017 crisis with North Korea, Trump and South Korea are both trying diplomacy in 2018 falls apart early 2019. And so that I think was a moment with the North Koreans where they were somewhat uh, the, the, like the, the China North Korea relationship is long lasting. It's also very complex and it's all, it's not often the sort of, you know, best friend, like we're buddies vibe. It's, it, it's very much kind of like a, you know, we get what we want out from one another, but we're kind of like, are suspect of each other's intentions sometimes. That was the moment, right? That was the, those were the windows. They started closing before Ukraine, but you, the Ukraine war and the reactions to it have kind of shut those windows decisively because both Iran and North Korea have sent, well, we don't know for sure on the North Korean side because it's just harder to tell. Like they said, they've, they've sent a bunch of artillery shells, for example. 
it's just harder to know via open source intelligence like okay what artillery shell is being fired out of this russian gun is it north korean or russian um but the iranians have sent drones that have been used to like bomb stuff in kiev and it seems clear that the iranians and north koreans have sort of seen this conflict plus some of the existing trends before the conflict and said you know what the us has nothing really to offer us at this point uh striking a deal with them would be a mistake we're going to throw our lot in with the russians right like if if the us is intent on democracies versus autocracies and we're the autocracies well you know hang together or hang separately type mindset and so i i i think that yeah i, I to me that's one of like a longer tragedy right where those windows of opportunity weren't taken um or they were taken but then we pulled out in the case of iran uh from from the from the nuclear deal and pers- trying to get something better and i don't think we're going to get anything better and and things are going to get worse so yeah real ch- real cheery stuff right and and i think this is kind of setting the tone for the next decade or more in terms of all right we're going to have to be dealing with you know a competitive relationship with the chinese uh increasingly hostile relationship with the russians and also any kind of sort of opening to make progress at the negotiating table with the iranians and north koreans is also gone uh which means just like a very competitive world and a very yeah i think it's going to create a lot of support in washington for um a lot of you know very forward leaning very sort of aggressive policies to deal with this um that might have a lot of blowback um so we'll see but it doesn't look good. Eric Gomez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.